Part seven of Blast, issue number one, edited by Wyndham Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In a Necessity, review of Kandinsky's book by Edward Wadsworth. Extracts from Kandinsky's Über das Geistige in der Kunst, translated by Edward Wadsworth, a permission by Messrs. Constable, who have recently published a translation of the book by M. T. H. Sadler the art of spiritual harmony this book is a most important contribution to the psychology of modern art the author's eminence as an artist adds considerable value to the work fine artists as a rule being extremely reluctant to or incapable of expressing their ideas in more than one medium herr kandinsky however is a psychologist and a metaphysician of rare intuition and inspired enthusiasm he writes of art not in its relation to the drawing-room or the modern exhibition but in its relation to the universe and the soul of man he writes not as an art historian but essentially as an artist to whom form and colour are as much the vital and integral parts of the cosmic organisation as they are his means of expression the art of the east has always consciously and passionately expressed this point of view which if it has been perceived dimly in western art has been only half-heartedly expressed european artists of the past have treated art almost entirely from a too obviously and externally human outlook europe to-day which is laying the solid foundations of the western art of to-morrow approaches this task from the deeper and more spiritual standpoint of the soul and herr kandinsky is concerned chiefly in pointing out that the raison d'etre the beauty and the durability of art are only possible if they have their root in what he terms the principle of inner necessity inner necessity he says arises out of three mystical fundamentals it is created out of three mystical necessities one every artist as a creator has to express himself element of personality two every artist as the child of his epoch has to express what is particular to this epoch element of style in an inner sense composed of the speech of the epoch and the speech of the nation as long as the nation exists as such three every artist as the servant of art has to express what is particular to all art element of the pure and eternal qualities of the art of all men all peoples and of all times which are to be seen in the works of art of all artists of every nation and of every epoch and which as the principal elements of art know neither time nor space it is necessary to penetrate with one's mental vision only the first two elements in order to see this third element exposed one sees then that a coarsely carved indian temple pillar is animated with exactly the same spirit as even the most modern vivacious work only the third element of the eternal and pure qualities remains ever alive it does not lose its strength with time but continually acquires more an egyptian statue astounds us certainly more to-day than it could have astounded its contemporaries for them it was associated much too strongly with characteristics and personalities of the period which weakened its effect to-day we hear in it the exposed timbre of eternal art and contrarily 
the more a modern work possesses the first two elements naturally the more easily will it find access to the spirit of its contemporaries and further the more the third element exists in a modern work the more will the first two be drowned and consequently the access to the spirit of its contemporaries becomes more difficult on this account centuries must sometimes pass away before the timbre of the third element reaches the soul of man the preponderance then of this third element in a work of art is a sign of its greatness and the greatness of the artist these three mystical necessities are the three necessary elements of a work of art and are closely united to one another the event of the development of art consists to a certain extent of the progression of the pure and external from the elements of personality and the style of the period so that these two elements are not only accompanying forces but also restraining forces these two elements are of a subjective nature the whole epoch desires to reflect itself and express its life aesthetically the artist desires to express himself in the same way and chooses only those forms which are related to his spirit gradually in the end the style of the epoch shapes itself and acquires a certain external and subjective form the pure and eternal art is on the contrary the objective element which becomes intelligible by means of the subjective the inevitable desire to express the objective is the force which is here termed in a necessity and which today extracts one universal form from the subjective and tomorrow another it is clear then that the inner spiritual force of art uses contemporary forms only as a step by which to progress in short the effect of inner necessity or the development of art is a progressive expression of the eternally objective within the temporarily subjective or otherwise the subjugation of the subjective by the objective so one sees finally and this is of indescribable importance for all time and especially for today that the search after personality after style and consequently national style cannot only never be attained by this search but also has not the great importance which today is imputed to it and one sees that the common relationship between works that have not become effete after centuries but have always become more and more powerful does not lie in externality but in the root of roots the mystical content of art and this principle of inner necessity herr kandinsky applies not only to the basic inspiration of creation but also to the concrete problems of execution this same force that animates the roots must generate a solid stem and permeate the picture in every branch and fibre and in the organic structure of every leaf this leads him to an extended consideration of the emotional and psychical effect of forms and colours as such divorced as far as is humanly possible from their attendant associations and herr kandinsky does not consider the effect of form and colour on the soul only but also its relationship to the other senses and its effect on the physical organism colour is more habitually accredited with powers of emotion than form but by establishing a common root principle with regard to the emotional effects of form and colour herr kandinsky destroys this erroneous opinion 
and he does this not only by means of logical argument and metaphysical ratiocination but also by a minute analysis of the colours themselves their physical characteristics and the possibilities of psychic effect in all their gradations of lightness and darkness and in their warm and cold tones form the suitability of the form to the emotion the artist wishes to express springs from the same fundamental principle of inner necessity and has always a psychic import and this is true not only of the whole composition of a picture but also of its component parts and their relationship to one another and also again of the form created by their relationship to the whole composition form alone even if it is quite abstract and geometrical has its inner timbre and is a spiritual entity with qualities that are identical with this form a triangle whether it be acute angled obtuse angled or equilateral is an entity of this sort with a spiritual perfume proper to itself alone in combination with other forms this perfume becomes differentiated acquires accompanying nuances but remains radically unalterable like the smell of the rose which can never be mistaken for that of the violet it is easy to notice here that some colours are accentuated in value by some forms and weakened by others in any case bright colours vibrate more strongly in pointed angular forms e g a yellow triangle those that have a tendency to deepen will increase this effect in round forms for example a blue circle it is naturally clear on the other hand that the unsuitability of the form to the colour must not be regarded as something inharmonious but on the contrary as a new possibility and consequently harmony form in the narrower sense is however nothing more than the boundaries between one surface and another this is its external meaning but since everything external implicitly conceals an interior which comes to light forcibly or feebly so also every form has an inner content form is then the utterances of its inner content this is its inner meaning one must think here of the simile of the piano but apply form instead of colour the artist is the hand which through this or that key equal to form makes the human soul vibrate appropriately it is clear then that the harmony of form must be based only on the appropriate striking of the human soul this we termed the principle of inner necessity the two aspects of form just mentioned are at the same time its two aims and on account of this the external limitation is thoroughly appropriate only when it best expresses the inner meaning of the form the exterior of the form i e its boundaries to which the form in this case is subservient may be very diverse but in spite of all diversity that the form can offer it nevertheless will never exceed two exterior limits namely one either the form serves as a shape and by means of this shape to cut out a material object on the surface i e to draw this material object on the surface or two the form remains abstract i e it represents no real object but is a perfect abstract entity such pure abstract entities which as such have their life their influence and their effect 
are a square a circle a triangle a rhombus a trapezium and the other innumerable forms which become ever more complicated and possess no mathematical significance all these forms are citizens of the abstract empire with equal rights once having accepted the emotional significance of form and colour as such it follows that the necessity for expressing oneself exclusively with forms that are based on nature is only a temporary limitation similar to though less foolish than the eighteenth-century brown tree convention today's laws of harmony become tomorrow's external laws which on further application depend for their life only on this now external necessity and so logically this axiom must be accepted that the artist can employ any forms natural abstracted or abstract to express himself if his feelings demand it those who perceive no emotional significance in form and colour as such invariably argue that to avoid human and natural forms is to sterilise one's creative faculties and to rob oneself of all that is noble in art but on the other hand there is no perfect concrete form in art it is not possible to represent a natural form exactly the artist succumbs well or badly either to his hand or his eye which in this case are more artistic than his soul which is incapable of desiring more than photography the conscious artist however who cannot be content with recording material objects seeks unconditionally to give expression to the object represented what one formerly called to idealize later on to stylize and what tomorrow may be called anything else this impossibility and futility in art of copying an object without any aim this striving to borrow expression from the object itself is the starting point from which the artist begins to aspire to purely aesthetic aims pictural as opposed to literary representations and so the abstract element comes always gradually to the front in art which even yesterday was concealed timidly and was scarcely visible behind purely material endeavours and this development and eventual preponderance of the abstract is natural it is natural since the more the organic form is repelled the more the abstract comes to the front and acquires timbre the organic that remains however has as we have said its own inner timbre which is either identical with the inner timbre of the second component or abstract part of the form simple combination of both elements or it may be of a very different nature complicated and perhaps necessarily inharmonious combination in any case however the timbre of the organic is heard in the form it chooses even if it is quite suppressed on this account the choice of the real object is important in the twofold timbre spiritual chord of both component parts of the form the organic can support the abstract by means of concord or discord or it can be disturbing to it the object can create only an accident timbre which if substituted by another calls forth no essential difference in the fundamental timbre a rhomboidal composition is constructed for instance out of a number of human figures one judges it with one's feelings and asks oneself the question are the human figures absolutely necessary to the composition 
or could one substitute other organic forms for them without thereby injuring the inner fundamental timbre of the composition and if yes then the case is imminent where the timbre of the object not only does not help the timbre of the abstraction but directly injures it inappropriate timbre of the object weakens the timbre of the abstraction and this is not only logical but is as a matter of fact the case in art in the above case then either some object should be found which corresponds more to the inner timbre of the abstraction corresponding concordantly or discordantly or this whole form should remain purely abstract the more abstract the form the more purely and therefore the more primitively it will resound in a composition then where the corporeal is more or less superfluous one can more or less leave it out and substitute for it either purely abstract forms or abstracted corporeal forms in either of these cases one's feelings must be the only judge guide and arbiter and indeed the more the artist uses these abstract or abstracted forms the more he becomes at home in their kingdom and the deeper he enters into this sphere and in the same way the spectator who gathers more and more knowledge of the abstract speech until he finally masters it is guided in this by the artist and so on the one hand the difficulties of art will increase but at the same time the abundance of forms as a means of expression will increase also both in quality and quantity here the question of bad drawing will disappear and will be replaced by another much more aesthetic consideration how far is the inner timbre of the given object mystified or defined the alteration in one's point of view will always progress and lead to a still greater enrichment of one's means of expression since mystery is an enormous force in art the combination of the mysterious and the definite will create a new possibility of light motif in a composition of forms composition of this kind corporeal and particularly the abstract will always appear as unfounded arbitrariness to those who do not perceive the inner timbre of forms the apparent inconsequent distortion of the single forms on the surface of the picture appears in these cases like an empty joke with the forms when for instance features or different parts of the body are distorted or perverted for aesthetic reasons one strikes against purely pictorial questions as well as anatomical ones which restrain the pictorial intentions and obtrude upon their subsidiary calculations in our case however everything subsidiary disappears and there remains only the essential the aesthetic aim exactly this apparently arbitrary but in reality extremely determinable possibility of distorting forms is one of the sources of the endless number of purely aesthetic creations the flexibility of the single form then its inner organic change if one may say so its direction in the picture movement the preponderance of the corporeal over the abstract in this single form on the one hand and on the other the combination of the forms which create the big shape of the whole picture further the principles of concord and discord in all the aforesaid parts i e the juxtaposition of the single forms the inner penetration of one form with another 
the distortion, the binding and tearing apart of the individual forms, the same treatment of the group of forms, or of the combination of the mysterious with the definite, the rhythmic with the non-rhythmic on the same plane, the abstract forms with the purely geometrical, simple or complicated, and the less definitely geometrical, the same treatment of the combination of the boundary lines of the forms from one another, heavy or light, etc., etc., all these are the elements which create the possibility of a purely aesthetic counterpoint, and which will lead up to this counterpoint. And colour, which is itself a material for counterpoint, which conceals in itself endless possibilities, will, in conjunction with drawing, lead to a great pictorial counterpoint, on which will be built also a pictorial composition that will serve God as a real pure art. And the same infallible guide brings it to that dizzy height, the principle of inner necessity. This insistence on the value of one's feelings as the only aesthetic impulse means logically that the artist is not only entitled to treat form and colour according to his inner dictates, but that it is his duty to do so, and consequently his life, his thoughts and deeds, becomes the raw material out of which he must carve his creations. The author points out that on account of this, although the artist is absolutely free to express himself as he will in art, he is not free in life. He is not only a king, in the sense that he has great power, but also in the sense that his duties are great. The constructive tendencies of painting, Herr Kandinsky divides into two groups. 1. Simple composition of a more or less obviously geometrical character, which he calls melodic composition, and which has been more generally employed by Western artists, Duccio, Ravenna Mosaics, Cezanne, and 2. Complicated rhythmic composition, which he calls symphonic, and which is the characteristic medium of Oriental art and of Kandinsky himself. End of part seven.